All right, so uh, I have a shout out for one of my students from last semester, Esther Ray, who um, sent this article to me, and I, it was one of the most enjoyable articles I've read in a long time. Very, very topical. It is an original contribution that appeared in uh, Injury Epidemiology, a journal I'm sure, Matt, you subscribe to on a regular basis. I read it every day. By I'm also featured in it. Ryder Leistad and Benjamin T. Brown, and the title is Death is Certain, The Time is Not. Mortality mm-hmm. and survival in Game of Thrones. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. <laughs> so what they did, these two authors went out yep. and bought the full seven-season DVD compilation of Game of Thrones without the last episodes. They don't know what happened with the last episode, and I'm sure all of our listeners know exactly what happened in the last episode. They, I don't. They went through all of those, those episodes, and they counted everybody that died. So it's like a giant survival analysis? They did a survival (laughs) analysis, and they looked at a whole bunch of risk factors (laughs) for death in Game of Thrones. And basically, they came up with a number of characteristics that predicted death. So of 330 characters that were included, 56% died by the end of the study period. All but two deaths were due to injury, burns, and poisoning. And what they did very clearly Clever. They went through all of the deaths and ascribed an ICD-9-10 code. Oh, that's oh, awesome. No. <laughs> they have wow. a table that is, takes up two pages with the ICD-9 codes of things like open wound of head, SO1, intracranial injury, burns and mu- of multiple body regions, assault by drugs, medications, biological substances, uh, place or occurrence, Prison, home, military camp, <laughs> street and highway, train and service area. Then what they did is they looked at what predicted death among the characters in Game of Thrones. And the survival time ranged from 11 seconds <laughs> after introduction of the character to 57 hours. The median survival time estimated to be 28 hours. And that is of running time of the, of the series, of the series yeah. not of like real Game of Thrones time. Oh, I see. I was going to ask how they coded person time. The probability of surviving at least one hour in the show was 86%. The analyses revealed worse survival for characters who were male... Mm-hmm. That makes who sense. Who were lowborn and who had not switched allegiance during the show or mm-hmm. who had featured more prominently in the show. And they went through this analysis where they, they have social status, highborn, lowborn, type of occupation, which they stratified to a silk collar occupation or a <laughs> boiled leather collar <laughs> <laughs> occupation. <laughs> so the silk collar were like priests. Uh, they, they must have had a union, those leather collar guys. I, I so imagine good. that they did. And then they, they stratified it also by religion. And unfortunately, if you were a member of Faith of the seven, your likelihood of dying was much higher than if you were a member of the Great Stallion or Lord of Light religions, <laughs> as well as the last known allegiance. And apparently, the can you guess which allegiance conferred the greatest likelihood of death? Matt, you ha- haven't really watched this show, but never seen the show. Anyway, if you were a Targaryen, you had the the next to lowest level, or a Greyjoy, you had next to the lowest level. But if you were a s- member of the Stark clan, if your allegiance was with the Starks, you had over 10% likelihood of dying in the show. 
And if it switched during the show, you had a 45% chance of dying if your lesions did not switch. Wow. Wow. Why do we not think of things like this? That is so clever. I really want to be a member of the boiled leather collar. <laughs> <laughs> I think union. on this on this podcast this great you paper. are, Don. On this podcast you are. So wait, well, so wait, 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 wait. Oh, I, I want to get back to the ICD-9, the ICD-10 codes, because we earlier on in the series we learned about uh, being hit by ducks uh, as, an IC, <laughs> oh, as a new yeah, ICD-10 yeah, yeah, code. Yeah. And I'm wondering if there's like a, a, a code for like, uh, you know, incinerated by dragon or uh, boiled in oil or things like that. <laughs> no, bitten or struck by dog, uh, bitten or struck by other mammal. That would There's be nothing other. in here. Are dragons duck. mammals? L- <laughs> no, they're not. They're, they? they're, they're, I'm sure they're reptiles. Okay, but they're hot-blooded. Yeah. There's an ICD-9 code for legal execution. <laughs> Did you know that? Asphyxiation, nope. maltreatment syndromes. Other ill-defined or unspecified causes of mortality. (laughs) Apparently nobody dies of old age in Game of Thrones. No, they've got too much to do. That is awesome, Don. Thank you for having me. It was excellent. That's great. So cool. Okay, so I found a paper in the one of the Christmas editions of the BMJ. We love the Christmas one, edition. <laughs> yeah, they're a lot of fun. So this one was in 2015. So this is by Carl Maynard Geisinger and colleagues. So hopefully I pronounced that right. This is a study on doctors' coffee purchasing patterns while at work. So I thought this was really mm. interesting. So essentially they looked at, they used the data from the hospital. This is a large teaching hospital in Switzerland, and they used data from the electronic payment system of when doctors purchased coffee from the hospital cafeteria. So of course, this doesn't account for coffee that you consume at home or from other sources, but they say that most people use this electronic payment system within the hospital because they have a really large staff discount of 45%. So they think this captures probably most coffee purchases that doctors make during the day. And they compare doctors across different specialties. So for example, surgery versus neurology, radiology, et cetera. And they found that, so they looked at the data across a full year and they found overall 84% of Doctors purchase coffee at one or more of the hospital cafeterias, and overall, over 70,000, almost 71,000 coffees were consumed in 2014 by doctors, which a lot of coffee. <laughs> seemed like a lot, especially <laughs> since I think the N here was 766 doctors total. So, <laughs> although, although, given how long the hours that doctors work, maybe I think I want them. Well, yeah, interestingly, I think they only were able to measure, I think maybe the cafeteria was only open for daytime most of the day, but they were not able to measure actually overnight coffee. And they did say that some doctors also have their own coffee machines in their offices. So we're definitely underestimating here. So that is, yes, I agree. We, we probably want people drinking coffee. So they found that orthopedic surgeons were the most, the, the biggest coffee drinkers, at least according to this data. So they had an average of 189 coffees per year, followed by radiologists at 177 and then general surgeons. So I thought it was fun. They had some funny lines on uh, why they think this might be. So they say in the discussion, uh, we tried to settle the debate as to whether surgeons, radiologists, or physicians drink more coffee. We believe we have finally clarified this important question unresolved for so Very many years. Question. <laughs> 
Yep. It is, in fact, the orthopedic surgeons who drink the most coffee, which suggests either that their work hard, play hard, drink hard persona extends to the hospital canteens, highlighting their productivity, or that they have too much time to kill and can be found hanging out mm. in cafeterias, which is, which do you think of course, it is? unlikely. <laughs> I think it's probably the former. I don't know. Or maybe they're making more money and they have more money that they can spend on coffee. Also, interestingly... They found that the more senior doctors seemed to buy more coffee than the more junior doctors. And they also did something interesting where they, they used the data to look at how many people would buy multiple coffees, assuming that they would bring them back for other people and found that senior doctors were more likely to do this, which is heartening. So hopefully they were going to share them with others who were more junior, which is kind of the opposite of, of what I might think watching like Grey's Anatomy when they always make like the medical interns go get the coffee. <laughs> and, and, and Grey's Anatomy is a documentary. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let me see. There was one other uh, funny thing. Oh, the older, older doctors consumed more coffee too. And they said increased coffee intake might help fight age and fatigue to keep up with the younger workforce. <laughs> mm, <laughs> <The> one... <laughs> that is... Another popular opinion repeatedly expressed to the authors during daily qualitative groundwork for this study is that senior doctors have more time to socialize and network. And finally, they excluded cheap instant coffee from vending machines Obviously, for this analysis. Because it's <laughs> not coffee. That's what they said, yeah. Although these beverages do contain <laughs> caffeine, we believe this brew does not merit the name coffee. <laughs> so true. So I thought that, that was is pretty true. Funny. Oh, that's really good. Okay, so I have a question. Mm -hmm. If we were to repeat this study in a school of public health, <laughs> which department, who consumes the most coffee? Would, what's your guess? Hmm. I don't know. Oh, maybe it's the department's in Crosstown because you have a coffee place in the building. We have to venture out. If we're no, see now you're going by coffee. you're going by by coffee. I'm meaning by profession. All schools of public health. Ah, um, I don't know. What do you think? I don't yeah, know. For I'm, some reason, I'm I think saying, it's... I'm saying epi because we best understand the health benefits ah. of coffee. I, for some reason, think it's the biostatisticians. Don't know why. Don't know why. <laughs> really? Yep. Anyway. I think, I think departments that with more Europeans would have, mm. right? I mean, I think this was in Switzerland. I'm, a, I'm was, imagining yeah. their coffee consumption is probably higher than ours. Okay. So, they did say something about that. So the, did they? The, okay. The chair of the uh, biostats department is is a listener. So, Jose, if you're listening, <laughs> let us know whether or not you think that I'm right, that the biostats department consumes more coffee than any other in the School of Public Health. All right. It's summertime. And it that means sure people is. are going to the beach. And what is going on at the beach these days, guys? Well, Cape Cod? Sharks. Yes. Sharks. Yes. Lots of them. Lots of them. So, because no fun Because we have beach. lots of seals. Yes. Do you have the, the North Atlantic shark app on your iPhone yet? No. So cool. It shows you where the great whites have been have been spotted. Okay, hold on. It I'm downloading so as we speak. Cool. It is so cool. Anyway, it's a little bit chilling. You basically is don't it, want to go in the water at is all. It, is it Shark Week yet? Uh, every week is Shark Week on, at Brewster. Can I tell you? Can I tell you? I had a I gave a talk uh, a couple weeks ago in which I used a slide of a shark as a kind of a metaphor. And then you know how they have those like little texts that you can put in the top of a slide. Yeah. And I put. The, uh, the dates for Shark Week in there and asked if anyone wanted to watch with me. And I, I got two people, only two people in the audience of roughly 100 who came and said something to me that they actually noticed the uh, wow. my little joke You didn't there. talk about Sharknado, did you? No. no. It's a very good movie. Oh, it's an excellent movie. Sharknado. It's up there with snakes on the plane. 
Yeah. Anyway, sure. Right. So this is a this is a paper that I I I found and I and I was like, Don Thea is gonna love this one. Because <laughs> it's it's like useless science. <laughs> oh, <laughs> done really well. That is his wheelhouse. <laughs> this is yours. Anyway, so the, the 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 deal is that there was this this guy in September of nineteen ninety-four who was a surfer dude, and he was surfing off of the beach in Fl- uh, Flagler Beach in Flagler County, Florida. So don't go Say there, guys. Three times fast. Fl- Flagler, Flagler, Florida. Anyway, he was surfing. Uh, on his paddling away on his surfboard, having a good old time when he got chomped on his foot. And this was like a minor bite by, it was obviously a shark, but he didn't, you know, he was, it was his foot. So he was looking one way and the shark bit him on the foot and Mm -hmm. let go and swam off and Mm -hmm. he didn't know what it was. So he paddled in and he got some minor sutures and like was back to surfing and being a dude before you could say boo. He was not put off by this in the least. But the thing is that 10 years later, a fragment of the tooth migrated out of his foot. Because, like, you know, often when sharks bite, the teeth are very brittle and they will fragment inside the uh, host. Uh, and so he, like, that. took this little fragment, took it to a friend and says, can you tell what kind of shark was this? Because he was curious. Mm-hmm. And the friend, who was, like, a shark expert, said it was too broken up and he couldn't really tell. But then another 10 years later, a second piece of this shark tooth migrated out of his foot. God. And this time he took it to his friend, who was a molecular biologist, and they sequenced the meta, the meta, <laughs> mi- the meta mitochondrial gene now that's a good friend. And it was a, it was a black tip shark. <laughs> it was a black. It was tip a black tip shark. shark really? Carcharhinus lumbatus. Absolutely. So now he Fascinating. Knows. <laughs> wow, that is pretty cool. Well, what's, so when someone say, "What's eating you?" <laughs> you can say a black carcharhinus lumbatus. Oh, <laughs> I thought that, that, that was like so it changes absolutely nothing. Great. But I'm with him. I would have wanted to know. Anyway, this was in the Journal of Wilderness and Environmental Medicine. If you want to read it, 2019 lead author was Lei Yang, PhD. Apparently, has not enough to do. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, for mine, I yours has a lot of formulas. Well, on as it. you I know, as you there. guys know, I treat this podcast as my form of therapy. Mm-hmm. So I just work through my you, issues. You have a magnet about that? It, it, I do. It's on my fridge. In particular, I find there are a lot of things that somehow I just missed in life, and I'm guessing. You guys might have already known this, but I was at home the other day working on a manuscript and suddenly it popped into my head the fact that when I was a kid, we used to go to the circus every year when the circus would come into town. Ringling and Brothers and Barnum Bailey. Yep. And you know, they drive in, the clowns drive in in the clown car and suddenly they open the door and 50 clowns come out of the same car. Mm -hmm. My assumption as a kid had always been there was a trap door in the floor of the, and that's how they got that many people. It's a TARDIS. What? It's a TARDIS. Oh, I, that's a Harry Potter reference, Doctor right? Doctor Who. Oh, sorry, Doctor Who. I was close. No, it is not. But do you know how they do it? No. I, so, okay, so now I feel a little better. Russian, I that, Russian, I, Russian clowns? Like I thought Russian they dolls? were all really in there. So that is the answer to the question. They are all really in there. So I looked up this article on the <laughs> physics of clown cars uh, by John Perley Huffman, published in 2011, in which he interviewed the director, the executive director of the International Clown Car Hall of Fame and Research Center, which is uh, apparently a real thing, who says there is no trick to the clown car gag. What they do is they take a fully functioning car and they remove the entire interior of the car. So they, including the door panels, the headliner, and then they paint the windows except for a small slot for the driver to be able to see through. The driver sits on a milk crate and then they beef up the the springs a little bit so that it doesn't sag down onto the 
wheels. And so this gentleman went ahead and did the math. Now, I think most of us know that an American standard clown stands at five feet, eight inches, and weighs 158 pounds. So that's um, one clown unit. That's according to uh, the... Standard clown units. <laughs> yes. Um, the offices of circus, zoos, and carnivals, that is, or possibly Wikipedia. And each clown occupies three cubic feet, assuming 15-inch width and 5-inch thickness. And the typical 2011, the 2011 Ford Focus sedan has got 93.1 cubic feet. The trunk has 13.8 cubic feet. So theoretically, you could get 40 clowns to fit into a Focus. Wow. Now... If you want to get more sophisticated, though, there is an actual formula to use, and apparently the number of clowns you can get in a car depends on a mix of the clown politics, clown size, clown flexibility, clown survivability, and the critical maximum clown hilarity quotient. <laughs> and he works out all these formulas, but in layperson's terms, as he said, this boils down to somewhere between 14 and 21 clowns with their props in the typical clown car. That is so cool. I just thought you all needed to know that. That is really cool. I love that. I I, I was shocked to find out that they, they were all really in there. That kind do, of... Do you know also, Matt, since we're on the subject of clowns, not that, just, that, that, that they're creepy, but... <laughs> they are. Um, but, which they are. But that if you, ha if you wear clown shoes, you don't have to clip your toenails ever anymore. <laughs> I did not know that. Because they, really they just kind good, of curl up. Really good, really good point. Um, Eventually, I, they fill up the entire shoe. Can I tell you that, oh, that is gross. Can I tell you that when I was in, um, when that's, I was in high school, so long. when I was in high school, I had a friend who went off and got a degree from the Ringling Brothers Clown College in Minneapolis, Minnesota somewhere. I then went off to college and met a guy who already had been to clown college with the same guy that I knew from high school. So I know two people who got degrees from clown college. I think that says more about me. How's it going for anything. them? You know, one of them is actually to this day, a clown who is part of clowns without borders. That is the thing. Is that a real thing? That is a real thing. It's been to Sudan and, and a lot of different war torn areas. Anyway, that is do my, creep my, out kids around do, the world? <laughs> that's my story on clown. I will make no no comments. I actually think it would be a little concerned, like traumatizing, if you'd been through a lot of trauma to then see a clown. But I, I guess you know, it works out really well. If you're doing balloon toys things, you have to do Bactrian camels with two humps. It's much more challenging. Mm, good point. Here's a question I know you've always been wondering about: What is the biological function of male facial hair? Oh, um, so, <laughs> I feel like it's got to be to make us more attractive. That very well could be. That very well could be, especially now in the pandemic. I think I feel like everyone on you know everyone on Zoom is sporting some facial hair. So, I can't see. I can't uh, see Chris's current bearded state. Chris, where are you? Yeah, I, I'm. I'm. Yeah. I'm her suit these days. Her suit. So there are wildly, three. There are three of us on this on call. <laughs> yeah, three men on this call, and we all are bearded. Yeah. So this is a, a you know very appropriate. So this was a paper that was published in a journal called let's see, it's a biology journal. All right, let's see, a biology journal. That, and I'll give you the title: Impact Protection Potential of Mammalian Hair, mm. Testing the Pugilism Hypothesis for the Evolution of Facial Hair. So basically, what the authors are suggesting in this biology journal is that the role of male facial hair was to absorb punches. Mm. I like <laughs> okay, it. so that right, so that the furrier your face was. 
is, the more likely you were able to sustain a facial beating but, from another but, male but wait, person. Aren't there people who have those annoying, like, sort of artsy, uh, hipster, you know, facial hair that just makes you want to punch them? Maybe, maybe that, maybe yes. They, they weren't looking at it as as the rationale for for the aggressive behavior, but it's interesting. So you know, they talk through how you know when people fight, they tend to punch people in the face, and this was like the the root of their core hypothesis that maybe you know the mandible they say when superficially covered by the beard is the commonly most commonly fractured facial bone in interpersonal violence, and so they hypothesize that the beards protect the skin and bones when men fight by absorbing and dispersing the energy of a blunt impact. So yeah. what they did, they tested, they did an experiment, okay? They made a fiber epoxy composite as like a bone you know, analog, and then covered it, okay, with in three different formats. Okay, one that was covered with skin that had thick hair, the furry, the furry model. Okay, skin that had no hair, the sheared or the plucked model. And then they and then they did it. So they did a sheared one and then a plucked one. Okay, so they had three variants of this um, facial, of this you know this facial model. Okay, and then they 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 used a they call it a drop weight impact tester affixed with. <laughs> A loaded cell to go, to, and they basically punched it and went to see how much force it could absorb. Okay, and so they took this model, they punched it over and over, over at different velocities, and then went to see, you know, and then looked to see what what happened. And you know, they had twenty, they did twenty punches in each, the furry, the plucked, and the sheared condition. And, and they found that it was true that the fully furry samples were capable of absorbing more energy than the plucked and mm. the sheared samples, okay? Wow. And it was statistically significant in their analysis. And, and anyway, so this supports the hypothesis. Wow. They claim that human beards protect the vulnerable regions of the face well, what about from goatees? damaging blows. <laughs> what, what about what, Chris? Goatees. <laughs> Go, eh, yeah. But punch to the mouth only. Because <laughs> I think you'd also have to look at the probability of being punched score as well as the impact of punch. Mm. It's, yeah, I don't know. And also, like, there's, you know, people get punched in the nose a lot too, but there's, I don't know if that's like nostril hair. Oh, yeah, good <laughs> explain, point. Is explaining that. Ooh, right. yeah, the totally nose beard. We need a right. nose beard. <laughs> right, right, yeah. right. So, anyway, wow. a little intriguing, right. well, intriguing know, scientific tidbit. Now I know I have this beard. Right. Right. Stay right. safe. Stay safe. Stay safe out there. So I'm going to talk about memories. You want me to sing? I was hoping someone would offer. Can cats? you? Can you? Yeah. Did you see you cats? Want? Oh my! So, Have you, so better did, than seeing cats is reading the reviews of cats. Yeah. So I did. You know, I saw it as a kid, and then when it came through Boston, several, I don't, maybe even a year ago now, I took my daughter to see it, and I will say. I don't know that it's aged particularly well, like the leg warmers and spandex and everything. But when memories, I, it did give me chills. The woman's voice was was amazing. But you haven't seen the movie, which is what everyone is <laughs> no. so, so I have, disturbed I, by. Yeah, I'm not going to my, see that. My favorite, see the movie. my favorite review of the movie was, it said, I preface this with the fact that I'm not a cat person. After seeing this movie, I'm not sure I'm a movie person. <laughs> That's great. No, I won't be seeing. I won't be seeing the movie. But okay. this this story is not about cats. It's about flatworms and mollusks. Oh, cool! Um, not nearly which, as... yeah, which I prefer. Okay. I think to cats. Right. I like cats. So this is an article that appeared on the online magazine Nautilus. It was posted back on December thirteenth. 
The textbook wisdom is that memories are stored in synapses. And this is one of those things that I just assumed that we would know much more about this than we actually do. I would have assumed too. Um, But there's this very interesting, what was his background? He was a a psychology professor at the University of Michigan way back in the 50s, James McConnell. And he had done all of this research on these freshwater flatworms called planaria. And the reason he studied them Two reasons. First of all, they have a true synaptic nervous system, so Mm -hmm. that makes them interesting for a worm. But they also have these amazing abilities to regenerate. So you can apparently chop up these worms into 50 pieces, and all 50 pieces will become complete, fully functioning organisms again. Isn't that amazing? So cool. Yeah. So Hmm. I remember doing this in high school biology, by the way. Chopping up worms? Chopping up uh, planaria, yeah. Oh, really? And watching them, have them, watching them regenerate. It was so cool. Yeah. I mean, it, it took like a week or so, but they, they totally did it. So, okay, so huh. this leads to, so when you, let's say you chop one of those little guys in half and you've trained the full worm to do something. So... Wait, you can train a worm oh, to yeah. do something? Absolutely. So this guy trained them, the early experiments were getting them, it involved some shocking... So he was trying to get them to associate light with getting a little electric shock. And um, sure enough, he was able to do that. So he had these trained worms, and then he would chop them in half. And the head end, not surprisingly, would retain its training. But when the tail end grew ahead, it also knew to associate light with no. being shot. Yes. That is super So cool. that was this first kind of clue into maybe your memories aren't stored into in the synapses. They're, they're stored in, in some other way. Well, and then there was this Swedish neurobiologist, Holger Haydn. He had suggested way back in the 1960s that memories were actually stored in the RNA of neuron cells. So in response to this idea, this McConnell from Michigan took advantage of the fact that these flatworms are actually cannibals, and he chopped up some trained worms and fed fed them to untrained worms. And sure enough, they too knew to recoil in response to the light and even would retain training to things like getting through a maze, much more complicated tasks. And I assume he checked beforehand that they didn't have this experience. They They don't go into all the controls here. But but then he feeds them the worm and then they, whoa. Crazy, right? Like like that show Heroes and that evil villain Skylar who would eat all the the, the victims (laughs) and then would absorb their abilities. It came, it, clearly the idea came from this, this obviously. So cool. Yeah. So, but wow. this guy retired in, okay, so first of all, he tended to self-publish his work. So he had his own journal called The Worm Runner's Digest. Yep. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. In, in addition to his research studies, he also published some sci-fi humor and cartoons in there. So it wasn't all taken super seriously. He retired in 1988, and then it kind of, this kind of fizzled until recently. So this is not new information. No, wow. he, he, was, he was doing all this like in the 50s and 60s. So a couple of people have now picked up on this. So I'll just give you one example. So David Glansman is a neurobiologist at the University of California, Los Angeles. And he works with a mollusk called aplysia. A play- anyway, it's Sounds basically delicious. a big inky sea slug, mm. um, but it has a very simple nervous system. 
And he was shocking these mouths to train them to sustain this reflex that they have, which is basically to, they have what they call a siphon. It's this little breathing tube between the gill and the tail. And he wanted it to extend that reflex to withdraw the siphon when it was touched. So basically they would train them to do this. They would notice that during the training process, there would be all this new growth in the synapse. Hmm. He would then destroy that synaptic growth. They would then have unlearned this behavior. So consistent with the idea that the memory is stored in the synapses. synapses. But then they would retrain them and notice new growth there. And then the snails behaved once again as if they knew how to respond to that stimuli. So it didn't seem like it was really stored in the old synapses. It was it was something that was that remained there. Hmm. So he's also buying into this idea that it's really stored in the RNA. So they actually extracted RNA from these synaptic regions, destroyed the synapse, then injected this RNA into untrained mollusks. Oh, mollusks, yeah. And sure enough, they, <laughs> the ones who had been injected with RNA from a trained mollusk were able to, to show this behavior, whereas the, the ones with RNA from untrained did not. And so they, you know, I mean, this is really cool because it changes, kind of changes the paradigm about memory, but also they are optimistic that it could have some sort of health implications for, for folks with dementia or memory loss. Wow, cool. So in the future, I wouldn't have to learn calculus. I could just have it injected? Injected. Yes, that's right. <laughs> that is so cool. <laughs> that is super cool. That, I am really impressed. All right, I have a new hero. Is it Quintilian? Okay. No, it's not. <laughs> is it no, Julius it's, it's, Caesar? Uh, uh, Quasimodo? <laughs> Nick, could you turn off his mic? Please. Possibly Ovid. Are you done? Yes. All right, so I have a new hero. <laughs> and his name is Andre Geim. Okay, and Andre. He is a Dutch scientist who works in the Netherlands, and he has the singular distinction of having won both an ignoble award mm-hmm. and a Nobel Prize. Oh, no wow. way! That's Imagine impressive. That. Double Imagine no fair. <laughs> so he has this totally refreshing approach to science where he and his lab team have instituted a Friday night experiments where they are encouraged to go into the laboratory and do something completely unrelated to what it is that they are studying. And as a result of these Friday nights experiment of experimentation in the lab, his perspective is that it's better to be wrong than to be boring. So he encourages these people to sort of follow their nose. And there have there have been many attempts, but three major discoveries that have come out of these Friday night experiments. The first one was the one for which he won the Ig Nobel Prize. And what he decided to do was to try to figure out whether a very, very powerful magnet has an effect on things that we ordinarily don't consider to be have a charge. And so he was able to sort of drop 
water droplets through this very powerful magnet and suspend those water droplets in midair to have this anti-gravitating, oh, wow. levitating effect. But what he was known for and what, what he got the Ig Nobel prize for was he did the same thing with a live frog. Oh, so cool. he was able to levitate oh. a live frog in this magnet for an indefinite period of time. And they've got a video of it, and it's the most remarkable thing to see. You see this live frog suspended in air, kind of flailing about in various different ways. Trying to figure Whoa. out what the heck is going on. Right, right. And then the second, the second discovery out of this group was that they were able to figure out and replicate how gecko foot pads work which are a remarkable construction of nature because they have this incredible adhesive power and they have like no sticky stuff on their Ooh. on their pads and it's like so how do they do it super velcro well when you when you take an electron microscope and you and you bore down on the foot pads of a gecko you you see these what they call stellae which are like little fingers that crop up and you you if you focus down on the tips of those stellae, there are yet another set of stellae and another set of stellae until you get this incredible surface area on the foot pads of these geckos, so that when they come in contact with an extremely smooth surface, I mean they can walk up mirrors. Yeah. The surface area that's in contact with the surface actually takes advantage of Van der Waals forces. So these wow. intermolecular forces that when taken together over all of this huge amount of surface area actually bonds the foot pads of the gecko to the surface. And then they're very easy to break because all you have to do is sort of twist it to the side a little bit and it can then you know, can then dislodge. And so he made, he, he, he made tape that has these properties. And there's this whole new area of science that is looking at how to how to sort of commercialize these properties to the extent where eventually the thought is that there will be sneakers that will be anti-gravity boots that are anti that'll allow you to walk up a wall any wall yes it's absolutely amazing but the third thing that came out of these friday night experiment nights for which he won the nobel prize was the discovery of graphene and graphene, graphene graphene is a is a form of carbon that is one atom thick but okay, has incredible strength so that if you were to take a graphene monolayer and put it over a, uh, a pail and have the weight of a truck bearing down on the the graphene in the surface area of the point of a pencil the graphene would be able to withstand that pressure Huh. In addition, it's 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 quite close to being a not super super conductor, but a very incredible conductor, electrical conductor. And the way they discovered this was that he they they wanted to take some carbon and to make a graphene monolayer, and they ground down a piece of of carbon to the point where it was just dust, and they kept failing. But they had scotch tape that was in contact with this dust, and they kept throwing it into the garbage pail. And then they realized that if you take scotch tape and you apply it to a source of carbon and you tear it off, you essentially are creating a one atom monolayer of carbon, and that's the graphene. And that's, that's so cool. He, that's what he won the Nobel Prize for. Wow. And, his team submitted a paper summarizing their findings to Nature. The journal rejected it twice. 
which is such a common fate for historically path-breaking ideas that it could signal an unintended compliment. One referee said that it did not constitute a sufficient scientific advance, uh, which was cited wow. later by Geim in his Nobel Prize award-winning speech, which he called a random walk to graphene. Mm. That is fantastic. That is, is that so amazing? cool. That is so cool. It, it actually is quite insp- inspirational, too. Yeah, he's my new hero. He's really yeah. I, mind, I think he's mine, too. Can I, he has a complete sense of humor about this. Can I mm-hmm. ask about more about about the the, the geckos and their yeah. their amazing footprints? Are, yeah. So, are, the way you were describing it almost sounded like a fractal. Is, is that is that a, a, an appropriate descriptor? Not in what I've read. I, I, I'm not sure how you would really bind the two together. You know, it's 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 really a matter of having an an almost infinite amount of surface area and contact between the two forces, at that, such that these extremely weak intermolecular forces actually have a lot of sort of cumulative force that that keeps the the pad of the gecko foot in contact and adhesive to whatever surface it is. It's it's an amazing, amazing observation. Yeah. So you guys have known me a long time and you know that I'm a big fan of swearing. Uh, I, I have noticed that. (laughs) <laughs> I'm not going to swear on this podcast, but so, for that, so, you should so, tune into my Twitter. <laughs> just, just so you know, just so you know, I prepped Nick and he had a, a bleep button ready to go. No. And I thought pretty much this whole segment was just going to be one long. I am really doing a good job of controlling myself. So you guys. Okay. I wanted to talk about this interesting study that I found out about one of the benefits of swearing. So have you heard that swearing helps people tolerate pain? Oh, um, I have not heard that, but that is certainly my experience. (laughs) Well, does it help me tolerate it? I don't know. I don't think I tolerate pain at all, but it it is definitely a product of pain. I've heard that people who swear are smarter. Oh, yes, there is research to show that that they actually have. Yeah, that they've shown that they have a better mastery of the vocabulary. Really? (laughs) Seems goofy. That doesn't sound. Yeah, no, it's true. That's actually a fact. We can say it here on this podcast. That's been proven. (laughs) Award we love in research. Right, right. So interestingly, trials have shown that repeating the F word increases our ability to tolerate physical pain. And even more cool is that it helps to decrease psychological pain that we may feel when we're being rejected in a social setting, which is <laughs> really interesting. Okay, so some researchers who work in what they call the swear lab, which sounds really fun. I want to wonder- be part of the swear lab. <laughs> we know, we need that. I've heard of a swear jar, but... Swear Swear lab. lab. Wow. Yeah, there are some fun YouTube videos of the swear lab. So they wondered how swearing induces a stress related pain relief. So they thought, well, maybe swearing alleviates your pain by distracting you because swear words sound funny and they're somewhat novel, or if they somehow elicit an emotional arousal that is like how we regulate emotions, they help us regulate emotions. So The researchers thought, well, wouldn't it be great if we could create a swear word that has the same pain-reducing qualities, but it isn't offensive? And so they Mm -hmm. sought to make up a swear word (laughs) that was both humorous and novel. Okay. All right. Yeah. So 
they created two swear words I'm going to tell you in a second. So what they did is they had this trial where they asked 92 people to hold their hand in an ice bath. And this is kind of a common thing that people in pain research do to their poor subjects. I actually did it once in a research study. Does it, it was in a does pain study. Yes, totally. Yeah, it really if you does. heard, it wouldn't work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they, I did an ice bath, and then they cut off my circulation with the cuff, and I had to do all of these tests. That's, you know, when you're seeking money. When I was going to say, why? who signs up for this? People who yeah. swear a lot. Yeah, I was also in the placebo group of an allergy trial when I was an undergrad. That was the worst experience oh, no. of my life. It was terrible. Oh, no. Anyway. Okay, so 92 people put your hand in the ice bath, and then they look at your pain threshold, is, which is when you start to feel pain, and your pain tolerance, which is how long you can stand the pain. Each person did this trial four times, saying four different words each time. So the first word, or, and they randomized these with people. So one word was solid, which is a neutral word. One word was the F word. And then the two words that they made up were fouch. Fouch. Like fouchy. you, Matt. Fouch. Nick, 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 are we allowed to say fouch? Fouch. Fouch is okay. We got the Nick, thumbs up from Nick. It gives us a thumbs up. Okay. And the other one is twiz pipe. Ooh, that is disgusting. <laughs> that is hard to say. My ear. Oh, my, my ears. Twiz pipe? Uh, oh, you wow. guys. Twiz pipe. You got the mouth of a. Trucker. And no offense is, to truckers who are probably lovely people, but wow. That is not easy to say. You, <laughs> twist pipe. I like you my twiz, is easy to say. <laughs> you twiz pipe like a sailor. Yeah, well, one of the things that they did in this swear lab was actually they wrote down a whole bunch of potential Oh, that must have words. been the funnest day. Yeah, and then they said, like, a, a one-syllable swear word is probably what we need. Like, those are the best swear words. Yes, yeah. my goodness. So anyway, sure. so... Schnauzer. <laughs> so they found in this study that the F word was the only one <laughs> that helped to increase your pain threshold and your pain tolerance. Whoa, shut the front yep. door. Yep. Shut the phone. Um, <laughs> and so they said, well, it's not just swearing, the, the pain, the pain alleviation effect of swearing is not just about a distraction because you could distract yourself kind of by saying any weird word and that swearing actually holds a lot of social and psychological power. So fouch you guys. Fouch you guys. Wow. I love it. That was awesome. Chris, what do you got? Uh, nothing nearly as cool as that. <laughs> But, it, but an, an interesting paper about human nature published in Nature, I think. No, Science. Sorry, Science Advances. Um, it's the title, uh, title of the paper is called Kids These Days, Why the Youth of Today Seem Lacking by John Protzko and Jonathan Schooler. And um, they start with this great quote, which was from Thomas Barnes, the minister of St. Margaret's Church in New Fish Street in London in 1624. Uh -huh. And I'm not going to do the accent well enough. Don't do it. But he says, this is 1624, <laughs> quote, the youth were never more saucy. Yeah. The ancient are scorned, the honorable are condemned, and the magistrate is not dreaded. Kids today. <laughs> Kids today. Boy. So apparently his point was that, like, we've been scorning the youth of today oh, for so a true. really, really, really long time. No, this is... And everybody thinks of the youth of today do not do not live up Every to generation. how we was when we was youth. 
<laughs> Every generation thinks this. Every generation. And so they decide to explore this systematically. That's cool. To sort of try to understand this. And and so they did a series of kind of clever experiments where they, um, they surveyed uh, individuals, I think, online, asking them about their attitudes about the youth of today on various dimensions, controlling for characteristics of the respondents. Okay, and so they did these three experiments. They actually did five, but I'm going to talk about the first three. The first study uh, asked the question, do kids respect their elders as we did back in the good old days? And so to look at this, they surveyed all these individuals about whether they thought the youth of today respect their elders appropriately. And then they also asked them to rate themselves in different ways on a scale of authoritarianism. And so the general result was that across the board, perceptions are that the youth of today do not respect the elderly. No, they do not. Which so and, and we don't know if this is true or not true, just that it is perceived to be true. But what was clear is that the 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 the, the tendency to believe that the youth of the today do not respect the elderly is strongly correlated with their endorse the the respondents' endorsement of authoritarianism. So like so like someone who's very heavy handed and believes like you know you know, certain presidents should have an absolute dictatorial right to do whatever they want. For example, not talking about our country necessarily, but you know, whatever, whatever might, uh, tend to be particularly likely to endorse this attitude that the youth today are not respectful. The second question they asked is, are kids less intelligent compared with us? (laughs) (laughs) So, and this was an interesting one because there've been longitudinal studies that show categorically that the, the average intelligence as measured, you know, imperfectly through intelligence tests is definitely rising in the United States. Mm -hmm. so like this theory, but it's that like it, the Will Rogers thing, right? Exactly. Right. It's not it's what, wait the Will Rogers thing. Explain. I'm going to get it wrong on the spot, but basically, when the Okies moved to California, the IQ of both places went up. Isn't that right? <laughs> is, is that <laughs> I love that. Is that from the, like the Grapes of Wrath or something? Uh, no, this is this is the definition of the Will Rogers phenomenon, oh, right? I, I yeah. see. I see what you mean. You're, if the two so, distributions were completely separated and the bottom of one exactly went to the top of the other, yeah, right? Yeah. Yes. Right. Wow, that's so, so that's cool. Pretty cool. Well, anyway, so our kids' less intelligence is, a, is like background. Yes, they're definitely more intelligent, but the perception is that they are less intelligent, not that they are more. They are. They are, yes. Anyway, you get the point. So here. <laughs> Uh, in general, most people didn't really believe this was so, which was somewhat charitable. With the exception is that the the the, in, the self-reported increased intelligence of the respondent strongly predicted belief that the youth of today are stupider. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so you're like, yep, you know. And study number three is is another good one. Do kids today enjoy reading less than we did when we were kids? And they looked at the authoritarianism of this, and they also did this thing called the author recognition test, which just is a, a a test to say, like, have you heard of T.S. Eliot? Have you heard of Shakespeare? Have you heard of people? who wrote books, not whether they have objectively read them, yeah, but, but that they have heard, heard of them. So it's sort of like a proxy for like literary consumption, but it's, it's a squishy one. We will stipulate. So again, the perception is that kids definitely do read less and that they enjoy reading less. But this is also predicated on the literacy of the respondents. So, so the people who rate themselves as highly literate are the most likely to consider kids to be illiterate mm-hmm. in terms of the consumption of the great works. And so their, their basic conclusion was, which is not like our kids, in fact, you know, less respectful, less, less, less intelligent and reading less because we don't have any indices of these except for the intelligence, which is definitely going up, is that most of this be- 
behavior about the kids, you know, the beliefs of about the kids of the day is based on yourself projected mm. forward Sounds rather than right. actually uh, any difference in the kids of today versus any time going back to at least the 1620s. That's that's that sounds about right to me. We have many times on this program talked about predatory journals and amusing ways that people have outed predatory journals in the past. And there's one that has been going around Twitter recently that just made me so happy that I had to share it. You guys might have already heard this one. But this was an article published by a gentleman named Daniel Baldessere, I think is how it's pronounced, from the Department of Biological Sciences in SUNY Oswego in the, here in the USA. And he wrote this article to submit to this predatory journal to see if they would, in fact, publish it, despite the fact that there are some, mm, I'm going to say there are some telltale signs in it, that this is not your average, well-written research paper. I'll start with the title. The title of the publication is, What's the Deal with Birds? <laughs> Which, you know, you would think might tip people off that something is uh, not right. So I'll read you a few lines. I'll read you a bunch of lines because there's so many good ones. From the introduction, it starts off, Birds are very strange. Some people are like, whoa, they're flying around and stuff. What's the deal with that? So I set out to test the hypothesis by observing several bird species. I watched birds and tried to figure out what they were up to. I predicted that these birds would be pretty wild, but that I might be able to figure out what their deal is. Then in the materials and methods, I looked at three different birds, a woodpecker, a parrot, and a penguin. I looked really close at them, squinting and everything, to try and figure out what was up with them. <laughs> to eliminate potential confounds, I conducted my experiments with only animals that I knew for sure were birds, and no other things like bugs or bats. Then he talks about some of the experiments, and then he says, that was a lot of work, so I didn't want to do that again. <laughs> Continuing on, to explore the relationship between appearance and weirdness, I ran two binomial generalized linear models with a link logit function. To analyze weirdness, we used the proportion of weird behaviors as the response variable. So then it actually, for a while, gets a little bit normal. Technical. But then, yeah. Then it gets in, then it comes back. Uh, I have to admit, these birds were weird. I mean, the woodpecker was hopping around on a tree, smashing its bill into the wood. The parrot had a really big bill and was really noisy. And the penguin looked more like a fish. It was swimming around and diving underwater. And so then the discussion then ends with, this is the first study that I am aware of to attempt to quantify the deal with birds. <laughs> this study has implications for climate change research. And then finally, from the acknowledgments, we thank Big Bird from Sesame Street for comments on the manuscript. So, And how many journals was it published in? Yeah, good question. Good question. This was the uh, Scientific Journal of Research and Reviews. So I am definitely going to be publishing there from now on. Yeah. The, the beginning, the intro sounded like something out of my six-year-old kindergarten science notebook, which he started with, you know, what's up with birds? Like I can, I can completely yep. see that happening. Yeah. It's a, it's scientific research written by Jerry Seinfeld. <laughs> what is that deal with birds? I'm just going to say something right now though, is that I, I would like to make a goal that in yeah. the course of my, the rest of my career, I would like to publish a paper titled what's the deal with, and then an actual health topic that I study. And I want right. I want to do it. I'm 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 stating it here. Hold me Let's to do it. at my retirement party. 
You're gonna let's have do to it. Comment. Let's do it together. The, the three of us are now gonna write a paper. What's the deal? What is the deal with epidemiology? Very interesting. Very interesting. Well, thanks. Oh, I have an interesting one, and stop me if you've if you've heard this one before. This is a paper that was written and published in the Journal of Archaeological Science. Ooh, I like this. I like that as a start. It has to do with feces. Excellent. which was one of the subtopics of my doctoral dissertation so that in my my past life I spent a lot of time thinking along this along these lines and so there there has been some archaeological evidence to suggest that early humans used frozen feces to make tools in arctic communities and so, right, so, so there's researchers who study this, like kind of creation of tools and like it, it makes sense, like right? Clay, if you, right? Right. Is it like clay and what, you know, if it's frozen, could you sculpt it into something useful, right? And so this team of researchers at Kent State decided to see if they could freeze poop and turn it into a usable knife, oh. um, which, I, which I thought was just like the, the coolest, craziest thing to do. And so what they did did is they I think they did it themselves that they they simulated an arctic diet that might be what one would expect of of early humans living in the arctic so it was kind of high protein protein high fat diet they they collected their feces they froze it and then they they sculpted it into a knife and in the article there's actually pictures of this of this device that they had created but unfortunately they found it did not cut meat it was not firm enough to cut the meat and actually the 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 quote from the article was it left streaks on the meat yeah, so I it bet. did not work and so and so they were saying that that was evidence of you know against the hypothesis that early humans were using our own feces as tools in that they did not withstand even kind of the level of, you know, in terms of using force, they didn't withstand enough force or the kind of body warmth that would be required to hold a tool to do something vigorous with it. But I was intrigued by the experiment. I guess I'm, I'm relieved experiment. to hear this, of course. <laughs> you know, well, it in, would have opened up the door to other problems, right? Yeah. Wow, that is interesting. I'm, I'm glad someone is studying these things personally. <laughs> Yes, I am. I am too. But it could have. I mean, it could have opened up the door for other kinds of, you know, cross contamination of food if we'd continued that practice into into later years. If we're cutting our meat with our own feces, yeah, it feces. doesn't seem like a good long term strategy, does it? It does not seem like a good long term strategy. I agree. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So this is one of those silver linings in our current crisis. You may have read about a couple of middle-aged pandas at a zoo in Hong Kong. So Ying Ying and Lili have been residents at the Ocean Park Zoo since 2007. And although they live together, there hasn't been a lot of romance between mm. Ying Ying and Lili. And you know, up until very recently, I think it was the 26th of January, there were most on most days visitors at the zoo. But they noticed that after the zoo closed, <gasps> um, yeah, Ying Ying and Lili started spending some more time together. And <laughs> sure enough, after two months of being alone together, it says the couple have recently shown signs they were in the mood for love. Whoa. Oh my gosh. Yep, and 
it it happened. It happened. And now there some signs point to Lily being being pregnant. Wow. The other thing I thought that was interesting about this article is apparently, I did not know this, but apparently pandas have a reputation for having a low sex drive. Mm. But really that's all based on captive pandas. We don't really know what what if pandas are more frisky in the in the wild. Um <laughs> Uh, Love the word but it frisky. seems like they, you know, they may just be modest. Well, that seems to I be mean, what's going on here. It kind of <laughs> makes sense, right? I mean, yeah, it does. Absolutely. Finally yeah. had some privacy. Yeah. My, oh my. Well, that is good news indeed. Yeah, animals uh, are thriving in, in zoos and such well, at this time, animals I think. animals are, are taking over cities, and uh, yep. have you seen the, I assume you've seen the videos of the penguins wandering around the zoo? I uh, love that, yes. The so aquarium. cute. Yeah. So yes. cute. Uh, so many good things going on. 